Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Breaking news, a clock running out for Missouri death row inmate, and we have learned now that the governor of Missouri has issued a stay in the execution of Marcellus Williams' execution. That execution uh, was set to happen tonight at 7 p.m. in Missouri. The governor has issued a stay because his attorneys have come out and said there is new DNA evidence that shows that he did not commit this murder and that the 48-year-old is innocent. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, while the news report at the beginning of this episode has nothing to do with Jesse Eldridge or Kiao Go, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The most important reason is that I have looked into the case of Marcellus Williams, and I believe that an innocent man came within four hours of being murdered by the state of Missouri this past Tuesday. But Williams' fight is not yet over, and I want to deploy the Truth and Justice Army to try to help make a difference in the outcome of his case, and ultimately, his life. And also, the reason that I'm taking the opportunity to discuss this on this episode is because it's a good time for us to take a break in the Jesse Eldridge case. Like I mentioned last week, we are just two episodes away from finishing Season 3. And right now, we're making one final dash at contacting a few witnesses who may hold the key to unlocking justice for Kiao Go. And on top of that, I got word this afternoon that the Dallas Police Department has new documents that they're releasing to us through my open records request that the Office of the Attorney General has just allowed them to release to me. At this point, I have no idea what's contained in those documents. Listener Paul Day, who lives in the area, is going tomorrow morning to retrieve those documents and scan them and email them to me. These records could contain nothing of import, or it could be new information that could break the case wide open. At this point, I just have no idea. So what I want to do in today's episode is to first tie up a couple of loose ends in the Jesse Eldridge Kiao Gove case, and then I want to move on to telling the story of the man named Marcellus Williams and see if the Truth and Justice Army can engage in this battle and bring justice for not only him, but also for the victim in that case, Felicia Gale. But first, let's tie up some of these loose ends in the Kiao Gove murder investigation. The 
first thing that I want to do before we move forward today is to clear a man's name. Now, this particular individual, 99% of you have never heard this name before, and that's because I've never said his name. The reason that I never said his name is because he was a person that seemed to be connected to a lot of people who were connected to this case, but there was no evidence whatsoever that he had any involvement. But several people listening here are very good sleuths and figured out who it was I was talking about, and a few people even reached out and made contact, which I want to reiterate again, I would ask that none of you ever do. But before we move forward, I want to take a quick moment and let everyone know that a man named Billy Ray Cobb, he would be the brother of Stephen Cobb, who was mentioned in episode 311, had nothing to do with this crime and knows nothing about this crime. Billy Ray was kind enough to get on the phone with me a couple of weeks ago. We actually recorded an interview, but there was really nothing important said in the interview because Billy Ray Cobb doesn't know anything about this offense. So I first want to go on the record and say that Billy Ray Cobb had nothing to do with this offense. And furthermore, I want to publicly thank Billy because he has been doing a lot of work since then behind the scenes to help us get closer to solving this case. So thank you, Billy Ray, and also thank you to your wife, Teresa. Now, speaking of people's names, I'm going to do something here that I've been avoiding up to this point, and that is the fact that I'm about to release the name of Ronnie Blackwell's 1991 girlfriend. Before I mention her name, I want to make clear that this individual, as far as we know, has nothing to do with this crime. She is simply a person that I've been trying to reach out to and trying to connect with because she may have information that she doesn't even realize is helpful. So the woman that I'm looking for is Rosie Simon's daughter, Nanny Simons. Now, Nanny Simons actually got married at age 17 and may be going by Nanny Simons or Nanny Hilchey. And I believe that she still lives in the Southeast Dallas area. Now, as a lot of you are jotting that name down in your notes, let me first explain to you what I do not want you to do. I do not want anyone bothering or harassing this woman I don't want anybody going to her home or her work. What I'm looking for is for someone who might know Nanny personally. This approach has worked before, and that's how we got a hold of Tammy Autry and Shauna Couples. People listening to the podcast knew these individuals and put us in touch with them. So that's what I'm looking for in this next week. If any of you listening know personally Miss Nanny Simons Hilchey, Please reach out to me through our email address, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or call directly into the show voicemail line at 269-224-2833. It is critically important that I speak with Nanny as soon as possible. Now, before we move on to our coverage of the Marcellus Williams case, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up as to what's coming next with Truth and Justice. As of right now, and anything could change in the next two weeks, but as of right now, we're going to update all of you on where Jesse is at legally. We're going to hear directly from Allison Clayton, his attorney, and she's going to explain where Jesse's case is at and where she hopes to see it go next. Then the week after that, at this point, is slated to be our season finale that will feature a full-length interview with Jesse Eldridge and his wife, Patricia, and his daughter, Nicole. That episode is slated to air on September 10th. 
Then the next week, on September 17th, we're going to be launching into a new case. Now, I mentioned last week that the next case we're going to cover is one that many of you may have already heard of. And I want to remind all of you all the way back to the end of Season 1, when we decided to continue on doing this after the Anand Syed case, that this podcast was going to become dynamic. We were going to move from case to case where we feel like we could help the most. Well, that still is the case today. And right now, I have three different cases where people are asking for our help. A couple of these cases will not be full seasons, but they're cases that we may cover for one or two episodes before we launch into Season 4. And then once we start Season 4, we'll, like normal, be on that case for several months. So, I'm telling you all that to tell you this. For the next month or two, things are going to be a little out of the ordinary as far as our normal production schedule. But more importantly than production, during that time period, we hope to help a lot of people and change some lives. Now we're going to take our one and only break right here for our sponsors, and we're going to begin our coverage on the state of Missouri's intention to murder Marcellus Williams. The story that I'm about to tell you is going to sound strikingly similar to a story that I told you in February of this year. On August 11, 1998, a former reporter with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper was stabbed 43 times and was pronounced dead at the scene. The murder of Felicia Gale went unsolved for several months until Crime Stoppers offered reward for arrest or indictment, and Felicia Gale's husband put up a $10,000 reward for anyone with information that led to the conviction of the man who had murdered his wife. There are a lot of layers to unpack in this story. The way I'm going to approach this is to first tell you the story as it was presented by the prosecution at trial. There was no physical evidence tying Marcellus Williams to this murder. There were none of his fingerprints found on the scene, none of his blood, hair, or DNA of any kind. The prosecution's case hinged on three items of evidence. About three weeks after Felicia Gale's murder, Marcellus Williams was picked up on an unrelated charge. When he was picked up, some of Felicia Gale's husband's personal effects were found inside of the car that Marcellus Williams was driving. I know these names are all new, so I'll break that down real quick. The victim's husband's personal effects were found inside of the car that Marcellus Williams was driving. And on top of that, it was discovered that Marcellus Williams had sold the victim's husband's laptop to someone, and the police later recovered it. This was pretty damning evidence, but it got worse. While Marcellus Williams was in jail, his cellmate, a man named Henry Cole, came forward and told police that Williams had confessed to him in jail that he was the one who had murdered Gale. Then, the icing on the cake was Williams' ex-girlfriend, Laura Asaro, who also came forward to police and told them that Williams had confessed to her that he had killed Gale. So the prosecution had a trifecta of evidence. Williams was caught with the personal effects of the murdered woman's husband. His cellmate in jail came forward to police and said that Williams confessed to him and his ex-girlfriend came to police and said that Williams had confessed to her. Now, like I said, there was no DNA or any forensic evidence at the crime scene that connected Williams to the murder, but the non-forensic evidence was pretty tough to get past. Then, luckily, the prosecutors were able to use their six peremptory strikes during jury selection to remove six out of the seven potential African-American jurors. 
Because, oh, by the way, Marcellus Williams is African-American and Felicia Gale was a white woman. So he went to trial with 11 white jurors and one black juror. When Asaro took the stand, that's Williams' ex-girlfriend, she told the jury that Williams had told her that he broke into the house to rob the place. Felicia Gale came out of the shower and surprised him, and he stabbed her multiple times and fled the scene with her husband's effects. Then Henry Cole got on the stand, that was the former cellmate, told a similar version of the same story, that, and along with the fact that Williams had sold the laptop computer and was found with a few other personal effects from the crime scene, Williams was convicted and sentenced to death. Williams' trial occurred in 2001, and he immediately started filing for appeals. There had never been any forensic testing done of the crime scene, and there was one glaring piece of evidence that Williams and his defense team thought could set him free. See, there was something very odd about this murder. Felicia Gale was stabbed 43 times, but on the 43rd stab wound, the killer left the knife in her body. Let me repeat that. The murder weapon, the knife, was left in her body. And this knife was a kitchen knife that was taken from her own kitchen. With 43 stab wounds, the killer's DNA should be all over this knife. So after fighting for over a decade, in 2015, the Missouri Supreme Court ruled in favor of Marcellus Williams and his defense to allow for DNA testing. There were several hairs found on the scene, and there was, in fact, a male DNA profile on the murder weapon. All of this DNA was compared to Marcellus Williams, and none of it belonged to him. At this point, Williams and his defense thought this would be enough to set him free, but they were sadly mistaken. Not only was Williams not set free after the discovery of this new evidence, but his execution date was scheduled for August 22, 2017, just five days ago. The Missouri Attorney General's Office continues to argue and maintain Williams' guilt and continues to push forward for his execution. Their argument is that the DNA evidence does not overcome the non-DNA evidence. Remember that non-DNA evidence is the testimony of a jailhouse snitch and Williams' convicted felon ex-girlfriend and the fact that he had some of the victim's husband's personal effects in his vehicle. And don't forget about the fact that he had sold that laptop. What the prosecution is not telling the public, but Marcellus Williams' defense attorneys are trying to scream from the rooftops, is that all three of those pieces of evidence mean nothing when compared to the new evidence that's been discovered since 2001. The defense has affidavits from two witnesses that were never heard from at trial that say that Asaro, the ex-girlfriend, told them that she set Williams up to get the reward money and to feed her cocaine habit. The jury also never heard the fact that Asaro was a known police criminal informant. She has a long pattern of lying to get herself out of trouble with the police. She helped them close their cases so she could get off on hers. Asaro had also testified at trial that Williams told her that Gail was in the shower, she surprised him, and fought him and scratched his chest. She even testified to the jury that she saw the big scratches on Williams' chest after the murder. But what the jury didn't know is that there was blood found under the fingernails of Felicia Gale. And that blood under her fingernails was tested, 
and it did come back to a male profile, and it does not match Marcellus Williams. But amazingly, that is not enough for the Missouri Attorney General's office to agree that Marcellus Williams is actually innocent. But wait, there's more. There was also a bloody shoe print found on the crime scene. The police seized all of Marcellus Williams' shoes, and the print didn't match any of them, and the print was also the wrong size. I mentioned hair earlier. There was pubic and head hair found on Gail's shirt and the rug that had recently been vacuumed. That hair did not match Williams or the victim or her husband, but that wasn't enough either. Asaro also testified that she saw Gail's laptop in Williams' trunk and that he'd sold it to a man named Glenn Roberts a day or two after the murder. Well, that much is true. But what's also true is the fact that Glenn Roberts said Williams told him when he sold him the laptop that he had got the laptop from Laura. So let's back up for a minute here. So Laura, the ex-girlfriend, who was homeless and a known prostitute, who had contact with many men around that neighborhood, supposedly gave the laptop to Williams to sell, and then later claimed that he committed this murder. Now again, let's go back to that forensic evidence. And I'm sure all of you have your wheels turning right now and are already piecing together a much more plausible theory than Marcellus Williams being the one who committed the murder. But don't stop there, because the plot thickens. Remember the other witness, William's cellmate Henry Cole? Well, as it turns out, phone records show that Cole and Asaro actually spoke on the phone while Cole was still in jail with Williams. So let me repeat that in case you missed it. The two witnesses the ex-girlfriend, and the cellmate spoke on the phone while the cellmate was in jail with Marcellus Williams. Then they both told similar stories, both seeking the $10,000 reward. And then, on top of that, there were several other inmates that wrote affidavits stating that police asked them to give statements to corroborate Cole. So let me repeat that again. The police were in the jail asking inmates to write affidavits, saying that they overheard the same thing that Cole overheard. Does that happen to sound like any case we've ever covered before? You know that it does. And remember what I've told you many, many times over the last three years. If someone is wrongfully convicted, within a very short period of time, you should be able to tell how and why they were wrongfully convicted. And that process with Marcellus Williams' case took every bit of 15 minutes to figure out. But as I said, that wasn't enough for the Missouri Attorney General's office, who was still pushing to what I'm going to call murder Marcellus Williams this past Tuesday, August 22nd. Remember that DNA testing in 2015 showed that none of the DNA on the scene, not under the fingernails, not on the knife, not the hair, none of it was Marcellus Williams. So even when they had those results, Williams was actually denied even a hearing about the new evidence. They just kept pushing forward to murder him. The prosecutor in the case, a man named Benjamin Spencer, made the argument that even though the DNA on the knife wasn't Marcellus Williams, that it could possibly be from the victim's husband. And I'm just going to call that what it is. Bullshit. They have the husband's DNA on file. It would take them 15 minutes to compare the DNA from the knife to the husband's DNA, and they would know the answer to that. But instead, the Missouri Attorney General's office would rather murder an innocent man. And the problems with Williams' conviction don't even stop there. You see, one month before Gail was murdered, another woman was murdered about three miles away. Her name was Deborah McLean. 
Let me break down the similarities between Deborah McLean and Felicia Gale's murders. They're one month apart, three miles away. Gale is 42 years old, McLean is 40 years old. And that is pretty much the only difference. They had similar builds, they both had long brown hair, they were both stabbed in the right side of their neck, and had multiple stabs to the front and back of their upper bodies. In both cases, there was very little disturbed at the crime scene. Both were stabbed with knives from their own kitchen. And then here's the kicker. Something that I'm sure happens, but I've never heard of it before. Both victims were found with the murder weapon, the kitchen knife from their own kitchen, still in their body. Marcellus Williams' defense team has been trying to test the DNA from the McLean murder and compare it to the DNA on the knife in the Gale murder for years. Fortunately, the state of Missouri is able to hide behind their own sunshine laws that don't require them to make public any evidence from a still open investigation. See, McLean's murder was never solved. So as things stand right now, and as things stood on Tuesday, all of the DNA from the murder scene have been forensically tested and Marcellus Williams was ruled out from any of them. There were only two witnesses that said that Marcellus Williams confessed to them. One said she saw the scratch marks on his chest, even though the blood under the fingernails of the victims didn't match his. The other was a convicted felon and a cellmate who spoke to witness number one prior to going to the police. And the Missouri Attorney General's office has the DNA profile from two murders three miles apart that were committed one month apart with almost identical M.O.s, and refuses to compare the DNA from one to the other. Instead, they stand on their soapbox and preach to the cameras that Marcellus Williams is guilty and should be murdered. Now, before I close this out and tell you what you can do about this, I want to make a brief point about the death penalty in this country. I've told all of you before that before doing this work, I was a proponent of the death penalty. But what I've learned since then is that not only is the death penalty not a deterrent, but it is also an irreversible punishment in a system that we know to be flawed. When you have a criminal justice system where the state of Texas Department of Corrections acknowledges that 10% of its 150,000 inmates are likely innocent, the punishment should never be something that you can't take back. As long as an inmate is alive, they still have a fighting chance to overturn their conviction, like Jesse Eldridge or Edward Eights. But once an execution is executed, actual innocence means nothing because the life has already been taken. In my opinion, the death penalty is nothing more than state-sponsored murder. And this case is a glaring example of why it should never happen. Thankfully for Marcellus Williams, a grassroots movement to spread the word about his case caught the attention of Governor Eric Greitens. And four hours before Marcellus Williams was scheduled to be lethally injected, Governor Greitens granted a stay of execution. So for now, for right now, Marcellus Williams is safe. On Tuesday, Governor Eric Greitens said the following, quote, A sentence of death is the ultimate permanent punishment. 
To carry out the death penalty, the people of Missouri must have confidence in the judgment of guilt. In light of new information, I am appointing a board of inquiry in this case. So what Governor Greitens has done here is he has created a new five-person board of inquiry. The board will have subpoena power, and they may be able to get the DNA evidence from that other knife. They're going to review the evidence, in addition to newly discovered evidence, and offer a recommendation to the governor, who will then determine whether Williams is granted clemency. Clemency is what you may think of as a pardon, meaning the governor has the power to drop the charges and not only stay the execution of Marcellus Williams, but actually send him home. I first of all want to go on the record and thank Republican Governor Eric Greitens for standing up for what is right and staying this execution and sparing Marcellus Williams' life and giving him a chance at not only living, but living freely. And I also want to take this opportunity to tell the state of Missouri Attorney General's office, shame on you. Even if there is a consideration, a possibility of doubt that Marcellus Williams is the murderer in this case, how dare you send him to the execution chamber? And anyone that can look at this case and say that they are certain that Marcellus Williams is the killer is absolutely full of shit. And you, Missouri Attorney General's office, are full of shit. And thank God the governor stepped in and stopped you from murdering an innocent man. Now, what can you do about this? While Governor Eric Greitens is waiting to hear back from his five-person board, I would like for him to hear from each and every single one of you. This will not take you more than a few minutes, but please take a minute to do a couple of things. Either call Governor Eric Greitens' office. The phone number is 573-751-3222. That's 573-751-3222. Let Governor Greitens know how much you appreciate him standing up for what is right and staying this execution, and let him know that you believe that Marcellus Williams is innocent and want to see him set free. You can also tweet directly to Governor Greitens at Eric Greitens. That's at E-R-I-C-G-R-E-I-T-E-N-S. That's E-R-I-C-G-R-E-I-T-E-N-S, at Eric Greitens. I know this isn't a case we've been working on for a long time, and Marcellus Williams isn't a person that you become emotionally attached to, but this is what the Truth and Justice Army is all about. This is what this movement is all about are hundreds of thousands of people standing up, united as one, and making a difference. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Executive producer is Mike Bussing. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo, and thank you to Chris Brinkley of sylviaconsultants.com for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. I also want to thank Desiree Dunn for printing off our transcripts every week and mailing them out to Jesse. And thank you to our transcription team, Sarah, Britta, Tammy, and Stephanie. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. And please remember the call to action at the beginning of this episode. If you are from the Pleasant Grove area or know someone who is, let's all work together and try to get a hold of Nanny Simons Hilchi. Remember, you can call that information into us to our show voicemail line at 269-224-2833. 
And you can keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>